0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Beep. Beep.
1: Hey, cardinals! This is Marianne Barkordarian. I grew up in the historical city of Yazd in Iran, a beautiful area known for gorgeous architecture and delicious sweets. I am proud to be an international medical graduate from Shiraz University in Iran, and I'm now doing diabetes research at UT Health in San Antonio, Texas. I am passionate about medical education and am currently working with the Wikidoc team at Harvard University to prepare a medical resource for students and residents. I am looking forward to applying for internal medicine residency with interests including cardiovascular imaging and interventional cardiology. I am also so proud to be a CardioNerds intern in House Tossett, as in the one and only Dr. Helen Tossett. Thanks. For tuning into this very special episode as part of our Narratives in Cardiology series, where we have conversations to highlight inspiring faculty and trainees as part of our mission to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. This episode is a real treat as we hear from Dr. Rachita Nabara and Dr. Christine Albert about their impactful research and their experiences as incredible women in cardiology and specifically electrophysiology. As I look toward applying for residency and as a future woman in cardiology myself, hearing their perspective and advice was so meaningful for me. Friends, we thank you for subscribing to and supporting The Cardiners. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Definitely make sure you claim free CME credit by using the link in the episode description. Dr. Christine Albert reported the following disclosure. She has received consulting fees from Roche and is involved with contracted research with both St. Jude Medical and Abbott Laboratories. There is no commercial or in-kind support for this activity. Now, let's dive into another terrific narrative episode because our differences make us stronger. Or as I would say it in Farsi, Hey, cardio nerds.
2: We are so happy to be joined by our colleague previously featured in one of our CNCR case series, Dr. Rachita Navara, cardiology fellow at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, and newly matched EP fellow headed to UCSF. Also totally an all-around rising star by every measure. Rachita is the youngest member of the ACC EP Leadership Council has a biomedical engineering background, and founded an artificial intelligence heart rhythm startup company, for which she recently submitted her first NIH grant as a fellow, and she led her med school band called The Pacemakers. Rachel, I'm smiling just reading this intro because of how ridiculously accomplished you are just as a general fellow. We're super excited to welcome you back to the series that we like to call Narratives in Cardiology.
3: Wow, thank you so much, and Dan, for that incredibly kind introduction and for inviting me back to your podcast. I never imagined I would get a double feature on the best cardiology podcast in history. So this is a huge honor. And really, I'm continuously inspired by all the outstanding content that you put out from tutorials to ECG contests. And I couldn't be more excited to participate in your latest series on narratives.
0: Rachita, thank you so much for your kind words. You're really making us blush here. And of course, we'd love to feature you. You are such a star. We really, really admire you. And as our listeners know from previous episodes, this series features distinguished cardiovascular faculty and fellows, such as yourself, representing diverse backgrounds, subspecialties, career stages, and career paths. Rachita, whom have you chosen to interview for today's episode?
3: Well, it is the ultimate privilege to introduce a true visionary in EP and a personal hero of mine, Dr. Christine Albert. It is simply not possible to include all of her accomplishments in this brief introduction because Dr. Albert is a leader in every domain, from clinical electrophysiology to academia to research to professional societies. She is currently president of Heart Rhythm Society, which is the largest EP society in the world. She recently transitioned from professor of medicine at Harvard and director of the Center of Arrhythmia Prevention at the Brigham to now founding chair of the Department of Cardiology at Cedars-Sinai. She is an epidemiologist and an R01 grant-funded physician-scientist with over 200 peer-reviewed publications with landmark contributions demonstrating the role of lifestyle and genetics on heart rhythm disorders. She has served as PI for numerous large-scale award-winning clinical trials, her latest studying primary prevention of cardiovascular disease and cancer in 25,000 patients across the country. She has served as the associate editor for Circulation and continues to serve on the editorial board of numerous journals in not just cardiology, but also epidemiology, clinical nutrition, endocrinology, and metabolism. To say that she does it all is a vast understatement, and to achieve these accomplishments in a field with only 6% women is unprecedented. Needless to say, she is an inspiration to all, especially EP-bound fellows such as myself, and it is a dream come true to have her join us today. I already have palpitations.
4: Well, Racha, that is a wonderful introduction. Thank you so much. And I was quite happy to hear that you are going to be pursuing EP and you're going to be doing NIH-funded research. It just is really inspiring to hear your story as well. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Albert. That's so kind of you.
3: And I thought we could start by discussing some of your major contributions to the management of atrial fibrillation. Even since my medical school days, it seems like the emphasis on lifestyle management for diseases such as atrial fibrillation has increased exponentially as we learn more about arrhythmia mechanisms. And now we specifically screen patients for sleep apnea, diet, alcohol use, etc., So from all of the landmark clinical research that you've conducted over your career thus far, could you maybe summarize for us what you feel are the biggest takeaways, whether in AFib prevention or in any of your other areas, such as
4: sudden cardiac death? Well, thank you. When I started doing research on the epidemiology of heart rhythm disorders, there really wasn't an emphasis, as you say, on risk factors for atrial fibrillation or sudden cardiac death. And then, you know, a group of us, not just myself, but Amelia Benjamin and in the Framingham Heart Study and Patrick Eleanor, we all started to get interested in looking at atrial fibrillation as you would cardiovascular disease. And some of the major findings are really related to lifestyle and how it can impact atrial fibrillation, including body mass index and weight and weight reduction. We've done several studies. One who first author is Usha Tedro, who's also an electrophysiologist at Brigham Women's Hospital. And she published a very important study in Jack where we showed amongst women that even being slightly overweight had elevated your risk of atrial fibrillation. And then if you lost weight, you lowered that risk. And in addition, some of the other research that we did was around exercise and showing that exercise is beneficial to atrial fibrillation, but as we all know, too much exercise can actually have an adverse effect. And this, again, was a study that was done by Tony Azer, who was also an electrophysiologist and is now at NYU, uh, worked with me for a while. So both of those manuscripts were very important with regards to management of atrial fibrillation. In addition, we also published one of the first studies looking at alcohol intake and atrial fibrillation. Now there have been multiple, multiple studies showing that alcohol is related to atrial fibrillation. And as you know, a randomized trial now that shows that if you abstain from alcohol, you lower your risk of atrial fibrillation. So all of these studies, um, not just by myself, but multiple investigators, have really changed the practice where we, as clinicians, think about lowering risk factors as electrophysiologists even. And uh, Prash Sanders' work in Australia really took it to another level by actually doing a clinical trial and showing that reduction of weight and modifying risk factors lowers incidence of atrial fibrillation. So now it's really one of our pillars of treatment, and it is rewarding to see something go from observational research to clinical trials and actually to practice.
3: Wow, that is fantastic and so inspiring. So many key findings that have directly impacted our clinical management of arrhythmias in all of our practices. It's interesting, speaking of lifestyle modification... I myself have converted to a plant-based diet since starting Cardiology Fellowship. I have to blame slash credit my husband, Kunj Patel, the interventional pain doctor, for paying the most attention to cardiovascular prevention and converting our whole family's diet.
2: Rachita, I can definitely relate. I myself went vegetarian because of my wife. And recall actually how hard of all things it was to give up Panda Express. I have no disclosures, no relationship with Panda Express. And so, Dr. Albert, we've heard so much about the beneficial effects of certain diets on coronary disease and really discusses at length as part of our ASPC preventive cardiology series. But I was curious about which diet or diets you recommend to patients with heart rhythm disorders.
4: That's a good question. You know, one of the first studies that I did when I was actually an EP fellow working at MGH was to look at the association between fish intake and sudden cardiac death. And we found that there was an inverse association and others after me and also found similar results. And, you know, the American Heart Association has recommended that fish intake is important, is a healthy heart diet. And I do believe that and I do recommend that. Now, a takeoff of that was that maybe people should be taking fish oil. And, and in fact, there have been some randomized trials suggesting a benefit on sudden death, but others that then were smaller that did not show that benefit. And with regards to atrial fibrillation, we recently just presented a trial at the American Heart Association where we looked at randomizing fish oil to 25,000 people and looked at atrial fibrillation and did not find a benefit. As you know, there are some studies that suggest that there may actually be an increased risk associated with omega-3s. So there's a lot of controversy actually on that specific topic right now, but regards to your question about what I would recommend to patients, there hasn't really been a good dietary trial or one that's conclusively proven that a specific type of diet lowers your risk of atrial fibrillation. For sudden death, there is the association with fish and also the Mediterranean diet has been, we've published on that as well, associated with lower risks of sudden cardiac death. So in general, I do recommend to my patients uh, a sort of Mediterranean type diet. But again, If there needs to be weight loss for atrial fibrillation patients, Mediterranean diet doesn't necessarily result in weight loss. So you do have to talk about other things like caloric restriction and exercise as well besides diet.
0: Thank you so much for that, Dr. Albert. Just hearing your expertise is literally mind-blowing. And while I haven't taken the plunge just yet into plant-based eating and caloric restriction is really what works for me, even though it's so hard.
4: Yeah, it is hard for everyone.
0: The struggle's real. I won't digress into my dietary habits. But anyways, hearing about all the various links between things like net meat and fatty acid intake and downstream remodeling of the atria is absolutely fascinating. I think this also speaks to how much we have to learn about the mysterious complex mechanisms of atrial fibrillation, for sure.
2: This is you know, such an interesting space. And I've got to recall back to one of my co-fellows, Owen Donnellan that we featured in one of our early episodes during our cardiac amyloidosis series, and he's done a lot of work showing the beneficial effects of weight loss and obesity management on atrial fibrillation and really uh, rhythm control. But Richard, you did research in this area as well, right?
3: I did. Yeah. During my residency at Stanford University, I was very fortunate to work with Dr. Sanjeev Narayan at the Computational Arrhythmia Research Laboratory, investigating atrial fibrillation mechanisms using multiple independent mapping methods. And we found that local drivers of atrial fibrillation behave similarly, whether near the pulmonary veins or elsewhere in the atria, which can impact how we really approach catheter ablation beyond traditional pulmonary vein isolation.
2: That's so fascinating. And if I remember right from your resume, didn't you present this at a podium talk at HRS during residency, I believe?
3: Wow, you really do your homework. Yes, that was an incredible opportunity. And I've had the true privilege of presenting at the annual meetings of Dr. Albert's organization, HRS, I think every year since internship. So really hoping that this qualifies me for a free pacemaker one day. But um, speaking of speeches, Dr. Albert, you have given 225 invited talks and presentations throughout your career thus far. Do you have any tips for trainees and young investigators on how you prepare presentations and how you give talks on research or otherwise?
4: First off, congratulations and thank you for attending the meeting since you were an intern. So you must have known that you had the EP bug pretty early on, which is great. I think that with giving presentations, I think back to my first presentation at the American Heart Association and the advice that I was given. And one of the advice was to memorize my presentation, which I honestly don't do as much anymore. But when I was a fellow, it was really, really helpful to practice it and to memorize it and not try to look at a piece of paper or try to go off on my own. And I do that with a lot of my fellows. I have them actually present to me multiple times because when you do present, you are somewhat nervous or you might see someone in the audience that you admire and all of a sudden it might get a little bit more difficult to remember what you were going to say. And if you practiced it a few times, then in general, it comes off really well. And so I think that's the best way to start is just to really... Practice, make sure you can keep some eye contact with the audience and don't look at notes. It's a lot of work, but I think it really improves the delivery and people remember your talks.
3: Wow. Fantastic advice, Dr. Albert. I can imagine how fortunate your fellows are to get practice with the presentations with you. And along the same lines, given your involvement in leading nearly 30 grant-funded trials supported by the NIH and professional societies and industry partners, I also wanted to ask another practical question related to the process of acquiring grant funding and running trials. How did you seek out your first grant opportunities? And how did you manage tasks such as the submission processes and coordinating trials, especially perhaps early on when you may not have had as much administrative support?
4: Sure. So I started out with a K award. And at the time, they did not have the K23, which is the one that most clinicians will be applying for. But I applied for a K08 award. And to be honest with you, I never really thought that I was going to do any research. I was pretty sure I was going to be a clinical electrophysiologist doing a lot of procedures, but I decided to do a project while I was an EP fellow on sex differences in cardiac arrest survivors. And when I did that, I realized that first I liked doing it, And second, that I knew nothing about it, how to do a a research protocol or how to do a study. So I actually went and got some specialized training and got a master's. And during that time, I took the opportunity to put together a K award. And a lot of times what you do when you're writing a K is that you will utilize your network to talk to people who have submitted Ks. Hopefully you're in an institution where there is that kind of support where you can look at other people's Ks that have been successful. And so you can see a structure that's worked in the past. And really, I had no training in writing. I was not a good writer. And I learned to be because I liked doing the research piece of it. And then once you do learn how to do that, then again, you can only get better by showing your work to a lot of people. One of the things that I think sometimes people who write their first grant make a mistake is that they write it and they try to do it at the last minute. When you're starting off, and even now for me, my grants are so much better if I can have a few people look at them And rip them apart because you learn from what other people say. And in the end, what a grant review is, is that it's a bunch of people getting together, reading your grant, who don't sometimes know exactly what you do or how you do it. You have to get them interested. So by showing your grants to other people who are maybe not even in the same field, you learn about whether you're making that impact. So my advice to people who want to start is to work with your mentors, hopefully you have have established one, but even if you haven't and you're sort of looking, work with your colleagues and see what's worked before. And in general, most people do start out with Ks, but in the EP world, as you know, it's a very highly procedural world. Sometimes that isn't the path that we take. And there are a lot of people who have been really successful in electrophysiology who don't have a K award and who might just go right to an R award later on. But again, same principles to start early, to utilize your network and get advice.
0: Dr. Albert, it's so interesting to hear how a project during EP fellowship, which is like at the end of your training, triggered this amazing cascade of events that greatly augmented your tremendous career. And I can really also appreciate the need for feedback and more importantly, being receptive to feedback and how that is so important in the context of things. This honestly is really great advice for our future researchers. And so, Rachita, throwing it back to you, you actually went through the grant submission process recently. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, that's right. So last month, I submitted my first NIH grant as a principal investigator. And yeah, it was definitely a very iterative process. As Dr. Albert mentioned, it was really key to have advice from so many of my fantastic mentors, not just from my current institution, but previous and even future institutions. And so I basically put together this ninety six page grant, and I think from this stage, I can already draw one conclusion, which is that carpal tunnel is a real threat to cardiology researchers
2: ninety six pages. What oh my gosh. Grant
4: was this?
2: They're usually not that long. When I messaged Reg, I usually hear back right away. but this explains why when I messaged Reg to plan for this discussion that one night, all I heard was.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I am afraid that is true. But I promise any other time, cardio nerds is my number one priority. But that actually brings me to my next question, which I know many physician scientists grapple with. Dr. Albert, how do you balance research with other duties, whether your leadership roles or, or clinical time, especially in a procedurally heavy field? What What is a typical work week like for you? And and another kind of add-on question to that is if you negotiated your early positions to include protected research time.
4: Yeah, that's a great question. And you definitely need to have protected time if you're going to do research, I think. The paths differ. So somebody who's going to be NIH funded like you. Uh, knock on wood. Yes, knock on wood usually has at least a good amount of protected time. And, and it is important to negotiate that. When I started, you know, I was on a K award, but I probably did about 40% clinical work. You know, I had a day in the EP lab that sometimes would be two and had clinic and that worked. And it's interesting because a lot of people say, well, how could you do it with an invasive subspecialty? But in some ways we're lucky in EP because what you do when you're in the lab stops after you get out of the lab. And for some people who do other more patient facing subspecialties, that your clinical day can more likely to drift into your research time. And so it's really a, a skill set of saying, okay, here's my research time. I'm going to do just research today. And then on your clinical days, you want to be as busy as possible and just do clinical work. And that means you have to be in an environment where that's possible. And that's not always possible in every environment. And I was fortunate to be in an academic environment where I had a lot of colleagues that were very supportive and that I would always help them when they needed help so if there was you know need for an extra person to pitch in I would pitch in but then they would cover me and let me do my research on the other days so it, it really is important what you pick for your first job and that you do negotiate that time I know a lot of really excellent clinical investigators that maybe did not have so much protected time to start and then were much more heavily clinical and ended up doing a lot more industry research, which is very important as well. So there are different paths. As far as how do you balance it in a procedurals field, for me, because I was doing so much research, I had to say, okay, well, these are the things that I can do. And I didn't do the whole broad spectrum of EP procedures at the time, and this is going to date me now, atrial fibrillation ablation was not part of our armatarium. And while I was in attending, we learned how to do CRT. So I did SVTs and VT and idiopathic VTs and ICDs and CRT, but I never really um, delved into AFib ablation. And I was comfortable with that and I was very capable of doing that. And then eventually when you do decide, and I took on more leadership roles and more research, then at this point, I'm actually not doing procedures anymore. But I did procedures for many, many years. And so the, your career evolves. And some people, it will evolve that way. Other people might evolve to be doing more procedures. And really, Often I tell people to do what you love. And I remember many people asking me when I was still doing procedures, why are you still doing procedures? It's just taking away from your research. And I said, because I like to do them. So I would encourage you as a new EP attending to do to do what you enjoy. But if it is going to have some research component that's NIH funded, it's going to need protected time.
3: Absolutely, Dr. Albert. I, I just really admire how you've navigated this very difficult balance throughout all the stages of your career. And I'm so glad to hear that you've been able to preserve the procedural aspects that you love. And I, I can certainly relate to that. And I've seen similar examples from my EP mentors who seem to balance a roughly 50-50 split between clinical duties and research with seemingly such ease and even find time to serve for example, on my recent submission as consultants and scientific advisory board members. And so I'm just very impressed, particularly with individuals such as yourself who can balance so many different activities.
4: Well, it's the fun part. I mean, you have to be the kind of person that likes to do different things. And so part of the enjoyment of doing a career like that, that has multiple different facets is the variety and getting to exercise different parts of your personality and different strengths that you have.
0: Support from mentors and collaboration with colleagues near and far is so key, whether it's for research or cardio nerds. I mean, our whole platform really relies on our mentors and collaborators for sharing and developing such fun and palatable content. Dr. Albert, we would love to hear your perspective after working with teams from multiple institutions in fields from epidemiology to clinical medicine. What have you found are the common features of a well-oiled team, whether within research or clinical?
4: That's a great question. Team is so important and team in electrophysiology is paramount. You know, I mean, everything we do as electrophysiologists is very team-based. When you're in the EP lab, you're with a team. When you're seeing patients, you usually have a team of people seeing patients. And then the kinds of research that we do in general is very collaboratory and especially somebody who does population research like myself. I mean, like I started off telling you about my research, you know, I clearly also mentioned a number of other people that we work with and we do research with. So to me, the ideal team is where everybody's valued, everybody has a role. People are able to have mutual respect for each other and really giving everybody the autonomy to show their expertise within the team. So not being intimidated by somebody who is incredibly talented in one sphere because if they're on your team, then that just makes you that much better. And I think all good teams have good leaders. And leaders, you know, my opinion It's really all about how well their team does. You can talk about your own successes, but it really matters more how you've grown people, enabled them to really succeed. That gives a lot of satisfaction to leaders that are good at what they do. So I think it's a combination. It's a good leader, but it's also the members of the team feeling respected, feeling collaboratory with each other. And again, it comes from the top. If the leader respects everybody and gives everybody a role, then there's no need to compete. And there's so many examples in EP of wonderful EP programs like that, where you can just think of, you talk about the program and not necessarily about a person. And those are really fabulous examples of teams. That is such
3: fantastic and, and practical advice. And as you mentioned, mentorship is particularly critical at various levels. And it certainly has been during my training thus far. I'm sure Amit and Dan can relate to this as well. And I was especially encouraged to see other female leaders in EP as mentees of yours, such as Dr. Usha Tendro, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. program director of Brigham's EP Fellowship. And I wanted to ask, in your experience, What makes a good mentor and mentee? And particularly, do you have any thoughts on the importance of
4: female role models for women in EP and women in cardiology? So I do think that it is very important to have female role models. When I was starting out, interestingly, there were some women who were electrophysiologists, but very few. And all of my role models were men in electrophysiology. And again, it's really important to have men support women, and they did. But I also wanted to have a woman mentor, mainly for the reason just to see someone else be able to do it. So actually, that was part of the reason I ended up in epidemiology is I sought out a woman mentor who was an epidemiologist. Jeremy Ruskin was my initial mentor in electrophysiology with Hassan Garan and Joanne Manson, who is an epidemiologist. And so it's kind of an interesting combination of people. And I sort of assembled it for myself so I could have both sides. Now you ask what makes a good mentor. And a good mentor is somebody who will spend time with you, will promote you, will have patience and teach you, but also allow you to grow and to provide you with opportunities that are not necessarily a 100% linked to the mentor. So it usually begins a mentor-mentee relationship that, you know, you're working on something that your mentor is interested in and that obviously there's a positive for the mentor, right? Because you're working on their research and or something that they wanted to get done. And so it's a it's a positive relationship and it should stay that way. Now, you may have other ideas. I mean, you may want to move on into another area. And I think a good mentor is willing to continue to mentor you, even if you do decide to move on to a different area, or if you even want to start in an area that's tangentially related, but not completely 100% in their lane. And that happened to me, I didn't have anyone who really was doing epidemiology and arrhythmia. And but I had mentors who, who said, Okay, yeah, you want to study this atrial fibrillation thing, go ahead. So you need people who will like be open to your ideas. But at the same point, be willing to spend the time to teach you to help you write to help you write grants. And How you are a good mentee is if you respect your mentors, it's always important to respect your mentors' time, realizing that they're very busy. So if you can package yourself and get yourself and all your questions and all the things you need all together, I still do that when I go to ask people for advice or sometimes when I meet with my bosses, I'll package what I need. So it's really easy to help. So doing some of the legwork yourself before going to your mentor will save their time and allow them to spend their time really teaching you the things that you want to learn. The other thing is just being honest and open with your mentor. I think that that's always really important and respectful of them. And I think most people are, but I think that, you know, everybody likes people who excite them and bring new ideas. So I've had wonderful mentees over the year. You mentioned Usha Tedra and multiple electrophysiologists that have um, gone on to academic positions throughout the country and the world, really. And that's been one of the most gratifying experiences of my career is watching their careers blossom. Awesome.
2: Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Dr. Albert. Great tips about how to cultivate a strong, positive and effective mentor-mentee relationship. And I want to walk back a little bit to how you talked about effective teams. It really spoke to me, especially when you said that an effective team is when everyone feels like they're a part of the team, or they're empowered to be a part of that team. And it really mapped onto how we've come to think of inclusion within cardiology, especially within this discussion about women in EP, women in cardiology. And I'm thinking back to how Dr. Pamela Douglas defined inclusion for our very first narratives episode. And she said, it's not just being invited to the dance, but it's feeling like you can get on that dance floor and dance like nobody's watching because you belong there too. And so I really uh, appreciate that sense of inclusion is not just important for cultivating a team. It's so necessary for cultivating a diverse and and effective
4: team. Absolutely. And, you know, I remember... When I started electrophysiology, I would go to the heart rhythm meetings. And I also was somebody who knew pretty early on that I wanted to do EP. I think I was an intern or a resident once I, when I decided that I really was destined for that field. So I went to heart rhythm early on as well, like you Rachida. And I just remember there were so few women and you can't help but feel awkward, even though you do know a lot of the men and you get along with them and you have male mentors who are supportive. It does feel when you don't have a diverse subspecialty, it's noticeable. But I would say now, I think we're making progress, at least at Heart Rhythm. We had the year that I was program chair, we had almost over 20% of the physician speakers were women. Because we have a lot of allied professionals, I think our overall rate was even higher than that. And given the fact that we have a subspecialty where I think it's grown actually to nine percent women, but it's still pretty male dominated. And we really, really do want to cultivate more of a diverse group of people People to go into it because diversity brings diversity of ideas, diversity of thought. It's how you grow by having the other thing that is important in teams that I didn't mention is really having complementary people and people who will challenge maybe the status quo. If you have everybody that all think alike, you'll never think outside the box. So diversity is really important for the health of organizations. And it's also important for teams that are pursuing science as well. I'm, I'm so
3: glad to hear you say that. And diversity really comes from the top. And you've given all of us in your society and beyond just such an important example of how to role model inclusion and integration. And I definitely feel that Even attending Heart Rhythm Society meetings now, I'm always so excited when I see so many female speakers and there's so many women in EP events supported by various organizations. And so I can tell the impact that your purposeful approach to inclusion has had on our field. That's great to hear.
0: This idea of inclusivity, it really, really breeds a beautiful place where people can collaborate. Going from the research perspective and you know, even at the clinical perspective, feeling comfortable as part of a team really allows for you to speak and to really offer a viewpoint that may have been overlooked otherwise. And we know this from, you know, at the bedside with the clinical team and in the cath lab or the EP lab. You know, when things go super smooth, you may not necessarily need everybody's input, but when things get hairy and a complication arises. If somebody who has a good idea feels included as part of the team, whether that's the attending, the fellow, the tech, the nurse, whoever it is, if it's an environment of collaboration and inclusivity, people will speak up and ideas will be brought up. And something that was overlooked may have been revealed and really lives could be saved this way. So I definitely have seen that in action.
4: Oh, definitely. When I was in the EP lab, it was always listening to the texts and the nurses and because they know a lot about what's going on, and they're looking at it from a different angle. And the teams that function well do that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And Dr. Albert, I'd like to turn back a little bit towards the the arc of your career. You've created such an incredible niche for yourself. And I wonder, how did you identify the clinical focus of your career? And do you think your research motivated your clinical interests and or vice versa? And the reason I ask is because I'm just four months shy of beginning interventional fellowship, and I'm so excited to dive into the CAT lab. But even with an intervention, it's such an increasingly broad and diverse field with structural coronary, complex coronary, peripheral, etc. And at this stage of my career, I'm wondering how do I parse through so many incredible areas within the field?
4: Yeah. So I think you don't know yet, right? I mean, I think that when I started, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I knew I wanted to do EP. I knew like you, like you're going to be an interventional fellow. And the research piece of it came later. And when you ask about the clinical was definitely the driver and the epi was the tool. So arrhythmias fascinated me from internship I think you know you're an electrophysiology fellow when you're the first one at the code and you're all excited when your patient goes into VT overnight. But then there were questions that I had or things that I wanted to answer once I did some of these research projects, but I didn't have the tools in order to do it. So that brought me to epidemiology. And I met some incredible mentors in epidemiology who did some really cool nerdy stuff that then I could apply to my clinical questions and so that did as you say create an incredible niche for me because there weren't many people crazy enough to do both of those two things in the end it's worked out really well for me and I've always said to people if you do think of something outside the box like that it's okay And I just actually had a conversation with one of our fellows about that. But you have to think about how you can structure a mentorship team, because even if you're very talented, no matter what, and driven, you will need mentors. So getting to the point where I actually had my own niche was quick for me because of the career path that I chose. But... I had a ton of mentors because what I did was I had a different mentor maybe for each paper. Like I would want to look at physical activity and arrhythmias. Well, then I would work with the physical activity epidemiologist, or I want to do some specific genetics analysis. Well, then I have to work with the geneticist. And then if I want to do something looking at biomarkers, then I was working with people that worked with biomarkers. So it's a lot of collaboration. It's also Knowing, being comfortable, not being the total expert on everything and being able to collaborate and, you know, say, okay, I'm going to listen to what this person has to say because they're the expert in this particular area. I bring this area, but they bring an, another area and we have to make it work together. And that's been one of the most satisfying things in my career, because I've gotten to meet and know so many diverse people with regards to their expertise. And I've learned a ton.
3: It's interesting thinking about niches. And for me, an area of interest in EP started as a research focus. One of my main motivations to come to WashU here for cardiology fellowship was to research non-invasive VT ablation with my current mentor, Dr. Philip Kuklidge.
4: Yeah. That's a great area. Do you have an engineering degree as well? I do.
3: Yes, I I have a background in biomedical engineering. And so I hope that, you know, one day I can not only practice clinical EP, but also start designing devices and and technologies that I can use in my own practice.
0: That's great.
2: And by start designing devices, I think what Rachida means is refining devices she's already designed.
0: Yeah, Rachida, actually, I had heard about this technology before we even met you because I heard a bunch of our EP fellows giggling about this technology in a very giddy and exciting way as a way to help our patients with really, really challenging, challenging arrhythmias. And we did get a teaser in the last episode, a little bit of a shameless plug for episode 54, where we had the privilege of featuring Washu, Amazing Fellows, and discuss an important case of amyloid cardiomyopathy. But Rajitha, can you remind the audience of this super cool technology?
3: Definitely. So this is an exciting novel approach to suppressing arrhythmias by completely non-invasive radiation targeted not to tumors, but instead to ventricular scars. So far, my projects have found some very unexpected findings that radiation can not only suppress VT but even narrow QRS duration even separate from VT suppression and it can even improve ventricular dilatation and and improve strain specifically in the areas in which the radiation has been targeted so all very interesting definitely a lot of exciting work to come and it's been exhilarating to explore new areas of the field and Dr. Albert, I know you know this feeling very well. For instance, your ongoing VITAL trial aims to uncover the first therapies for actually preventing AFib through vitamin D and fish oil. Hopefully, I uh, summarize that accurately.
2: Yeah, and thinking about these cutting-edge areas of research, whether non-invasive VT ablation or preventive approaches to atrial fibrillation, I'm always awed by the prospect of how this work may impact the patients we take care of. But there are so many steps before we get from A to Z, from to get to the bedside, and, and the devil is always in the details. So Dr. Albert, how did you come up with the hypothesis for the VITAL trial? And how do you encourage out-of-the-box thinking for your mentees or research team?
4: So the VITAL trial was really born out of research that I, again, did very early on looking at a dietary intake of fish and its relationship to sudden death and also atrial fibrillation. And early on, we had found that there was a a protective association on sudden death And we actually found a increased risk associated with atrial fibrillation. Now, others had found protective associations. And there have also been a number of studies on vitamin D and atrial fibrillation, and mainly just showing that patients who are vitamin D deficient seem to have higher risks of atrial fibrillation. So the VITAL trial was somewhat opportunistic in the sense that my research group, based upon some of the studies that I had done and others had done on cardiovascular disease, did this postulated this trial to look at cardiovascular disease and cancer, randomized 25,000 individuals, 5,000 of which self-identified as black or African-American, 50-50 women, to omega 3 fatty acids and vitamin D. And, you know, we presented the results at the American Heart Association meeting and, and right now the, the results are impressed. And basically we didn't find a benefit of either of those two agents on atrial fibrillation. There'll be more details in the paper as it comes out about different subgroups and things like that. But overall, we didn't find a benefit on atrial fibrillation. Now, sudden death is a little bit harder because it's such a rare endpoint. And the reason I started studying atrial fibrillation, not because I wasn't interested in it, but just it was really important to have something that was more common than sudden death is. We think of sudden death as a very common event. There's so many, we talk about 180, 200,000 a year in the United States. But when you look at it per person, it's like 52, to 90 per 100,000. So the thing about sudden death is it can happen to anybody. So you have to take the entire population. So in that vital trial, we have about 80 sudden cardiac deaths and we had 900 atrial fibrillation events. So we are going to look at sudden death as well, but we won't have the kind of power that we did for atrial fibrillation. So you ask about how you encourage thinking outside the box. And I think that. The, the way to do it is to really a lot of times fellows will come to me and say, I want a project, give me a project and I will come up with some ideas and there may be a project that needs to be done. But I also push people to come up with some of their own ideas and to send me some ideas for projects and encourage that because I am always amazed at what people who have not been in the field will come up with because they are unencumbered by the years and years of what we've done. And you'll think of something that I won't think of. And I do believe that some of the best ideas come from the younger generation, early career. So I always do try to encourage my mentees to think broadly, to come up with questions and not worry about how they're going to answer it right away then they can come to me and then we can probably try to figure out how we could answer it. But I can tell you that many of the things that I published later on, like the alcohol paper, some of the exercise work, were really generated by the fellow that I was working with at the time, looking at dietary patterns. I worked with a nutritionist at the time, and she came up with that kind of thought process and applied it to sudden death. And I just let people run with it because people have great ideas and you got to nurture them.
3: That is so interesting to hear your approach, not only to your own hypothesis generation, but also your commitment to supporting mentees to look through their own lens and pursue their unique passions. And really, this is one of the reasons I love EP, all about out of the box thinking and innovation. I was really honored to present in the inaugural HRS innovation session last year, virtually, but still very exciting. And I think our field in particular just really lends itself to creative solutions. Um,
2: um,
3: Okay, okay. Intervention isn't so bad.
2: (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. EP versus intervention aside, innovation is definitely right up your alley, Rachita. And I'm remembering something about microfluidic chips or whatever from our last episode. But hey, aren't you working on a novel solution for patients with arrhythmias, realizing, of course, that the details are probably proprietary right now?
3: Yeah, I'm really excited to have launched a startup company called SafeBeat RX. Without going into too many of the details, it involves applying artificial intelligence in order to care for our patients with heart rhythm disorders more effectively, not just in the hospital, but but in other environments. And I've gotten to interact with industry partners and insurance companies, patent experts, regulatory consultants. And again, my goal is to be able to offer this technology to my own patients one day. And that actually brings me to another question, Dr. Albert, with industry playing such a key role in EP. I'd love to hear how you got involved in your interesting consulting roles as well. Any tips for folks such as myself
4: who are particularly interested in device design or innovation? So for me, because my research was primarily focused on lifestyle in the beginning, I didn't have a lot of industry consulting relationships. But then as I went on and started to research things that have to do with genetics and biomarkers, and then that lended itself to Uh, much more interaction with industry. And our traditional industries in EP, like device manufacturers and ablation technologies, I mean, you do get to interact and meet them. I've always found them very open to listening to ideas. So if you had ideas for trials or things like that, I mean, I've never had an issue with reaching out or having someone connect me with, again, using your network to find out who they know. It might be in a certain space, and it sounds like you're already pretty well networked with all your mentors that you have. And I do think industry is very important. I've had several research grants from industry. Industry grants sometimes bridged me over at times when I needed more funding. And industry will support investigator-initiated ideas that maybe aren't directly related to what their product is. I mean, occasionally, usually they are, but I and others have had some success getting funding for bigger ideas that are not necessarily a derivative of what their technology is at the time. So it's good to have a balanced portfolio and to have both, to have industry and also to have NIH support and funding.
0: A balanced portfolio is really interesting. And I've heard very similarly from several mentors of mine. You know, I'm sure many of our listeners are itching to switch to electrophysiology by now after hearing so many of the cool advances in the field. What tips do you have for fellows who are interested in EP? EP often feels like learning a whole different language. It's almost like uh, ophthalmology in, in that regard. We don't always get exposure to the procedures during fellowship. How did you approach the learning curve, both intellectually and procedurally? And would you recommend any specific resources for fellows?
4: That's great. I think one of the things is you're right as far as getting exposure. When cardiology fellows would come through the rotation in EP, I would always suggest to them that they spend some of it in the EP lab and then that usually is just a different language at that point. But if you're interested and you ask questions, electrophysiologists love to talk about EP. So in general, I've found the EP lab to be the place where you really can learn and also ask questions. And obviously, when it's tense, or something's going on, people don't want to answer questions. But in general, I think that most electrophysiologists really like talking about EP. So I think allowing yourself to get exposure, you know, even as an intern, I actually went down to the EP lab and spent time there and they let me do that. If you have any interest at all, and you have interest in arrhythmias and patients with arrhythmias when you see them in the hospital, I think it is really important to expose yourself to it. The other thing is we hope that the heart rhythm meeting is hopefully going to help that process. If you have interest, again, I've done this with some of my mentees when they were interns and residents, you know, sent them to Heart Rhythm and many of them ended up being electrophysiologists. If they have any interest, because again, first of all, you get to see the camaraderie that exists in EP, which is very gratifying. I think we're a big community, but we're small enough that we sort of really enjoy each other's company and of course miss each other during this pandemic year. But you'll see that camaraderie and also you get to see all the cool science that's also involved. So I think exposing yourself to meetings, going down to the EP lab and reaching out to people who do it and especially to fellows, because I think it's easier to talk to a fellow and say, well, what do you like? What don't you like? Or maybe junior attendings because they're closer to that stage where they first decided to go. And some people are worried about going into EP because of the radiation and because of the lead. And and I think the same is interventional. And obviously, the lead is lighter these days. And, you know, we also have lots of ways to do florallus ablation. And it's and the other thing concern for a long time, I think for women was that it was a boys club. And I hope that it doesn't feel so much like that anymore. I mean, I know that as generations go on more and more openness to women leading and being part of the team. And so hopefully encouraging more women to go into the fields. I hope if you even think about it, that you check it out.
3: Even just hearing you speak about your draw into the field and how you encourage others to get exposure is incredible. And a big part of this narratives series is to learn from our role models' journeys and understand their relationship with the field. And we touched on this a bit, but do you remember the moment you decided that you could or would become a cardiologist and specifically an,
4: an electrophysiologist? That's interesting. So yes, I do. Well, it wasn't the moment that I decided. It was the moment that somebody told me that I was going to do this. And I remember it was a 24-hour period of being on call. And I had a patient who had a pacemaker-mediated tachycardia. And I had figured out that you should put a magnet on that. And of course, I became like the favorite of every EP fellow around because they didn't have to come in. And so then the next day, somebody came up to like actually talk to me because like, this wasn't that common and i was at a code and i was trying to manage someone's ventricular tachycardia and i came out of the room and mike gold who you may know he's a electrophysiologist and had been president of the heart rhythm society himself looked at me and he said you're going to be an electrophysiologist and i said what's an electric like i didn't even know at that point It was an in- i was an intern and i kind of knew what they did but i didn't completely and i said well why do you say that? And he said, well, it was just the way you're just so excited about, you know, ventricular tachycardia, and you figured out how to do this with this pacemaker. And you you ask us all these questions, and I just knew. So I think you, you kind of know if it excites you, like, and you really, you know, still to this day, I mean, arrhythmias are, are incredibly interesting, incredibly complex. You know, we still don't understand, as you mentioned before, all the mechanisms underlying atrial fibrillation, and there's so much more to learn. And I think that, that's how I knew. And then when did I actually know that I actually really, really was going to take the plunge and do electrophysiology? I would say that that occurred later on. I had, as I told you my story about having done the research project, when I was a cardiology fellow, I went to the School of Public Health. I was a little worried about EP because at that time, EP was really drug trials you know what we were doing was interesting intellectually but i wasn't sure we were doing icds but you know avid hadn't been published and and so then all of the randomized trials came out on the icds so i said okay well that's going to be good that's going to be something that we can do to help patients And then ablation also came along. So I actually took a couple years to try to be sure that this was really going to be a great field for me. And then I went back and I did my EP fellowship and and that was it. There wasn't any question.
3: I think, especially for a field such as EP, that exposure and that specific direction to our field, I think is critical. And to rise to the presidency of such a major organization, such as HRS, the biggest EP society with members from over 90 countries, where did you first begin along that trajectory? And what advice might you have for those who are aiming at this level, even as a trainee, you know, asking for a friend?
4: Well, I think you've started, right? You're working with ACC on the EP Council. And I think it is getting involved in the society. It's making sure that you take opportunities. You know, one of the opportunities that I had when I was early career, maybe one or two years into being an attending was Medtronic had this leaders, I can't remember what the program was even called, but it was young leaders and EP, something like that. And someone suggested that I go and to this day, I can tell you the number of people that were in that group, and you would know all their names. So it really was an illustrious group. And so we all got to meet each other and network with each other. And so it's like we grew up together. And you realize that there's important connections that you make and people above you, you impress people. If you go to the meetings and you do a good presentation, somebody may come up to you afterwards and say, I really enjoyed that. And then you're an awestruck because it's somebody who you think is really famous. And this happens all the time. And, and we hope that it happens a lot at Heart Rhythm. So going to the meetings, taking opportunities when they come. We have several leadership programs young leader programs at, at HRS. And doing the work. And if you do decide that you're going to either be on a young investigators group or a council or or somehow participate in your society, then really participate. So don't just sign up, but really do the work and get noticed. And that's what happens. I mean, for, for most of the presidents of HRS, they did it through being on multiple committees, doing a lot of work and really showing that you're dedicated, that you can lead, and that you would be a good spokesperson for the society. And so that happens over time. So I guess that's what I would say is get involved, get involved early. It's again, similar to what we talked about with the team and grants, networking, using your network, all really important and also important in societies.
0: Dr. Albert, we can keep asking you questions all night, but we promise this is the last question. What do you do to enjoy outside of work that keeps you centered and makes your heart flutter?
4: Well, right now, unfortunately, there's a lot of lockdown here in California. So as you know, I just moved from Boston to California and I always enjoyed travel and it was great an exciting adventure for me to come out here and Los Angeles is a great city with wonderful restaurants. And I really just like spending time with my family and my husband, who's incredibly supportive. And unfortunately, like with the pandemic with all of you, I haven't been able to travel or go back home. So a lot of it has been in the joy of meeting the new people that I've gotten to work with. This is a new job for me. And I've met a a lot of new talented people that I am honored to lead and to have on my team. So a lot of it has been centered around work this past year. But as I said, hopefully once things lighten up a little bit, travel and being with friends and family and just enjoying being outdoors and going to the beach and all those kinds of things that you can do in California really is important to clear your mind and also be best that you can be. And also exercise is really important, I find, to keep a clear head.
3: Well, Dr. Albert, I think I can speak for all of us when I say that I have just been floored by all of the fantastic advice you've shared with us, not only inspirational, but extremely practical and applicable, not just to EP, but all areas of cardiology and medicine. I am so grateful that you have taken this time with us to share your journey and and support our new generation of cardiologists. And again, I just thank you sincerely for for your time and
4: all of your inspiration. Thank you. Well, thank you for asking me to participate. It's really been fun and, and good luck on your NIH application. And I'm going to watch what you do. It's great.
3: Thank you so much. I really appreciate that.